Good morning. All right, see if you can find the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3 is where we're up to. Would you believe it next week, if we're all still here, is um, we'll finish off this series in this book. I've enjoyed it. Um, quite a few years ago, I was working in industry, and for those of you who have worked in industry of some sort, pretty common for, at the beginning of a shift, uh, for the guys that are all working together, uh, or the team that's working together there, would uh, get together and have a bit of a chat about... Um, what the objective for that shift was, what the project was, what the goal of that shift was. It might have been a particular job, might have been just a part of a job that they had to try and get done by the end of that shift, maybe. Different industries call it different things, but in the mining industry, they often called it a toolbox talk. Um, gather around the toolbox, they'd talk about the project, they'd talk about the work that was done. And usually, always, actually, part of that conversation was, um, what are some of the risks associated with doing this job? How can we think safely about doing this? What are the things that we need to be aware of that are going to be obstacles to accomplishing the task that's in front of us? And we'd all have to, you know, maybe get our little bit of pad of paper out or something that we had that you had to pre-fill or something and safe work procedures and all those sorts of things. And we'd get them all out and we'd write down, well, you know, someone might trip over or someone might cut their finger off or something. And and we'd have to try and figure out, well, what are the things that we can do to minimise those risks? How can we work safely? How can we think ahead? Now, taking a bit of time at the beginning of the shift, maybe you would sort of think, and some people go, oh, let's just get into it, you know, depending on your personality. Let's just get into it and get the job done. But often taking a bit of time at the beginning of the shift, that's, otherwise you might think that's not very productive time. No one's working, right? But... Um, statistically, it has shown that certainly taking a bit of time at the beginning of a shift to think about what are the challenges, what are the risks uh, to this job getting done safely actually helps productivity increase and certainly, more importantly, helps more people go home to their families at the end of the day. There's a way that we can think about our walk with Jesus in a similar way. Um, there's a way that we can think about what are the risks, what are the, what are the challenges to following Jesus on a daily basis? What are the things that we're going to come against today which will potentially be hard for us, potentially be threatening to us, potentially make it difficult to follow after Jesus? So I want to outline what I think are two of those things, and then we're going to go back to the text that we're looking at and see what Paul says that I think will relate to that. But before we do that, um, we really need God's help for this. Because my ideas, my words, uh, we are going to see you spend some time together just gathering as your people. We have remembered what you've done for us. We have uh, considered together and spoken aloud and sang together and declared the fact that you are God and you are amazing. And we mean that. And Lord, even as we come to this part of the service where we just pause and we want to have ears that are ready to hear what you're saying and we want to have hearts that are ready to receive what you're saying. Uh, Lord, help us, we pray. Holy Spirit, be actively working in our hearts and our minds to show us the truth and point us to Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I I think that one of the biggest challenges facing uh, someone who wants to be a disciple, so modern day following Jesus, discipleship, uh, particularly this is true in the Western world, particularly this is true in the world that we live in, the context that we live in, in Raymond Terrace, just on the edge of 2020. Um, I think it's two different things that work in combination to sort of try and assault us most days, and to be honest, I, I probably live through most days not being actively aware of them. They're risks that are always there, but sometimes unless we stop at the beginning of our day and realize what we're walking into, we may not 
notice them. So, so these are the two things that work in combination. Um, they work together in a, in a, a lethal blend. Um, two words, and then I'm going to explain them, or at least explain how I'm going to use them. The first word is individualism, and you might be more familiar with that phrase, but we'll explain that in a moment. The, the second one is maybe a word that um, it's a little bit big. It's got more than three syllables, so bear with me while I try and say it. Uh, compartmentalization. All right? Compartmentalization. Uh, so individualism, compartmentalization. Now, let me explain what they, they are and I think how they affect us. Uh, let's go with individualism first. That's a little bit simpler. I think individualism is sort of the, the cultural effect that we live in um, it's continually pressed onto us. It's, it's, a, it's a force that we're dealing with every day. And I think that we're so familiar with it that we barely see it. We barely sense its presence. Um, this force, individualism, is that we should view the world and we should view our part to play in this world through the lens of how everything affects me. Right? It's how I approach my day, it's how I approach my life, it's how I approach my job, my relationships, it's how I approach my entertainment, it's how I approach my um, reading, my parenting, my, my anything. And, and the primary lens that an individualist uses to try and interpret the world around them is how will this affect me? How, how will this impact me? And so even we read our Bibles, we think about our walk with Jesus, we think about our faith through the lens of individualism, rather than realizing that primarily this book is addressed to a group of people. So it's not really about me, and to be a little bit corny, it's about we, us. It's, it's got a plural, a group context first not just about me. And so we can easily turn to books of the Bible and stories in the Bible that we might be familiar with. And one of the first questions we often ask ourselves is, how do I identify with someone in this story? Because this story is about me. And usually it's not. More often than not, this story is about God. This story is about who he is in relation to who we are. This story is about his saving power rather than about my ability to muster up enough faith or strength. We read stories like David and Goliath and we say, well, I'm David. I'm the little guy. And Goliath is the challenge that's facing me. I've just got to find five rocks of faith and hurl it at his head, then cut it off. That's not what the story of David and Goliath is about at all. So, so we can read through the lens of individualism into our faith and we can think that this is actually a discipleship journey which is all about me. The Bible is primarily God's address to a people, not a person. And so we will reduce God's word to um, little devotionals that exist to get me through the day. What am I going to do to get me through the day today? Well, I'm going to find a little encouraging verse somewhere and I might even Instagram it. That'll make it doubly powerful. And we say things like, well, hey, this is my truth. Your truth might be different, but this is my truth. Individualism is not only robbing our culture of joy but it's robbing our walk with Jesus of joy. That's individualism. The second thing that I think works in tandem with that, it meshes in with it and impacts us as followers of Jesus, is compartmentalization. Let's explain that one. Compartmentalization is a false view of life that life itself is made up of various segments. Now, if I knew how to use um, a computer better than I would have, I would have put a, 
little pie graph up on the... You remember what a pie graph was? I can see people starting to twitch when they think about high school maths, but... Um, a pie graph, you know, a circle divided up into segments, like oranges that are all going or something, and each segment represents something, and, and together they make up a whole. That's compartmentalization. It's when we, we segment our life up into various segments, and maybe there's hundreds of segments in our life, maybe there's just a few, and we relegate or we isolate certain aspects of our life into that compartment. So we think, this, this particular compartment here, this is my work life. All right, This is my work life. And we, we draw a neat boundary around it and we say, work life stays in that compartment. In fact, it's highly stressful to us, isn't it, when work life starts to seep out of that compartment and into the other compartments. Let me um, give you a little insight into the early days of my relationship with my wife. <clears throat> we met each other on a short-term mission team. For those of you going on team missions this year, take a good look at your team members. <laughs> you never know. You never know. All right? I scored big time. Um, we met on a short-term mission trip and... Uh, she had more than one conversation with me. So I thought, that's, that's the furthest I've ever got. <laughs> um, I'm going to write this girl a letter. That's the next big test. This is before emails, people. Um, I'm going to write her a letter. I literally got a pen and I wrote something. I thought it was highly endearing. I think, you know, either she looked at my handwriting, just thought, this poor guy, you know. But she read a letter back. I lived in Queensland, she lived down here. Believe it or not, I would send a letter, and there was about, what, a week's turnaround? A week, right? This is only 20 years ago. A week. A bit over 20. And we would write a letter, and she wrote a letter back to me, and I remember getting it in the post and being so excited, and I wrote a letter back, and she wrote back, and anyway... I live here now, we've got a family. So <laughs> I came for a holiday to sort of come down and meet more of her family and spend a bit of time. And we went to KFC. Oh. Wow. <clears throat> All right, I splurged. <laughs> and um, we were just eating, um, just sitting, having our, our meals. And Kat said to me, um, can I just give you an observation about something that I've noticed? <laughs> I mean, that should have been a warning bell right there. But, um, and she said, you, you only eat one part of your meal until it's all gone. And then you move. Why don't you take a chip and some gravy and some chicken? I was like, because psychopaths eat their meals like that. <laughs> you eat one thing at a time. And in fact, if I had it my way, when you put stuff on a plate, you have them all on the plate. Tomatoes don't touch salad. Other sal you, you keep things separate and you eat one at a time so you can enjoy the flavor of that and you move on down through the list until you get to the, the best bits last, right? That's the right way to eat a meal. Um, that was the first of a few, let's call them discussions, that we've had over the years, you know? So, you can laugh at that sort of stuff where we have little sort of idiosyncratic, little peculiarities about our life where we sort of think, oh, I don't like my tomato touching my bread, or there's a certain way to put cheese and tomato on a sandwich, or, you know, those sorts of things. There's, we can laugh about that sort of stuff, but the reality is that so many of us live life that way, where we start to think that life is all about these compartments and neat segments, and we've got to keep everything in that part of life. And so we have our work life, and we have our family life, and we have um, our recreation life, and we have our social life, and somewhere in the mix of all of that, we sort of think, let's just try and squeeze God in somewhere, and that's our, that's our spiritual life there, all right? And, and so often what occurs in a compartmentalized life is these sort of um, separated segments of life that we just can't seem to figure out how do, we, how do we get them to work together? 
We all have 24 hours in a day and we all have seven days in the week. And every time we add something to our schedule, the other pieces of our segments of life, they need to adjust. You can't have more than 100%. Sorry for all the people that are out there on the sports field saying, we gave it 110% tonight. It's like, no, you didn't. Oh, give me a break. All right? That's not maths. It leads us to, to thinking that work is one part, family is another part, church can be squeezed in there somewhere maybe, recreation is our right, this is our part, and all of us go through life adjusting these segments depending on our priorities. But our, our passage that we're going to look at today from Colossians 3, it completely undermines both of those things. It completely undermines individualism, it completely undermines compartmentalization. I think that today's passage further develops or extends the idea that the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has not only done for us in the past, but continues to do for us today, the good news of the gospel requires us not to just fit Jesus in somewhere, but to align ourselves consistently with the reality that Christ is all and in all. Colossians chapter 3 verse 11 was part of the passage that we looked at last week. If you're already in Colossians 3, it won't be hard to find the little number 11 somewhere in there. Paul says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and Christ is in all. What he's saying is we can't escape Jesus and there is no part of life, whether that's a cultural group or a socioeconomic group or whoever it is, there's no part of life that we can escape Jesus from. We don't fit Jesus into our schedule, Paul is saying. Today he's going to say he is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. And that's a challenge for us. So last week we looked at chapter 3 and we went from verses 1 all the way down to verse 17. And we saw that it was dominated by a series of lists, remember, if you were here, that categorized, um, categorized what we take off and what we put on, what we cast off and what we put on. All of these lists were meant to illustrate what it looked like when we are seeking to live with our minds set on things above where Christ is. They're designed to try and help us look like, what does a consistent life look at? And we looked at broadly um, the, the way that we can engage with the world around us and, and in particular the way that we can relate to one another. Um, it, it finished and included a, a list that had a bunch of things that could be damaging to the way that we engage with this world. I talked about you know um, inappropriate ways that we can um, care and love uh, and relate to people in general. Uh, talked about the ways that we can relate to people in close relationship with us. And what it was doing was showing that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, isn't just a series of truths that we sort of believe and say, yeah, I believe those things, but they have no, uh, no impact on my life. Paul's saying... No, they do have an impact on our life. They actually look like something in a consistent walk with Jesus. Well, today's passage is just going to extend that, all right? It's just going to drill down a little bit further into a series of relational sort of spheres, relationship types that we all engage with. And it's going to show us how the gospel informs that, how it shapes our understanding of that to live a consistent life. So let's read it together. It's not a long passage. Chapter 3, starting from verse 18. It's going to come out of the gates with a bang. All right, get ready for it. Colossians 3, chapter 18. And we're going to read down and we're going to cross the chapter division and we're going to go to chapter 4, verse 1. We're allowed to do that. All right, chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands. I told you. All right. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything. Kids, 
For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. That's the passage we want to just reflect on just in the time that we've got left. Three big sort of relational environments that you, that you bump into in this passage. The first is wives and husbands. I've already given you a little bit of a, uh, hopefully somewhat humorous illustration of the way that it can get off to a rocky start. It was all over those stupid KFC chips. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The gospel is going to speak into how we think and treat one another, particularly in a household, particularly in a marriage. Now, I realize some of you um, may not have a partner here, may not have a husband or may not have a wife, but I want you to, to tune it in and lock it away a little bit because I think there are some principles here that govern not just the relationship of a husband and wife, um, but in particular, that's what Paul is addressing. What's going to be helpful here for a moment is to just try as best as we can to sort of time warp back 2,000 years and think about the culture into which Paul was writing this and from which Paul was writing this. It, the world 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire didn't look anything like what we're experiencing today. Now, we can draw some lines between them. We can say, look, I can, see, I can see there are some similarities. But by and large, it was a very different world. In particular, this was a time of deep, deep gender inequality. Um, where, where men were not only often tyrants, but celebrated as tyrants expected to have that sense of rule and authority, to have that sense of harshness about it. And, and certainly history would show us very clearly that women were often viewed as little more than possessions. Now, I said that we can draw some lines. I think there are some roots that go from our generation all the way back there, and we're seeing that. But, but this was in-your-face stuff. Wives could be almost bought and sold in the Roman Empire. They held very little place in society. And so we've we got to think about what Paul's writing here because, in fact, it is deeply countercultural to the time that he lived in. And even though he uses words like submission, which in our age and our generation is almost a swear word in some circles, what we can see here is that what Paul is actually highlighting is actually deeply countercultural to the time that he lived in. And in fact, his intent and his, his reasoning behind it is incredibly liberating. So I want you just to think for a moment, opening verse, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. That's the opening phrase that we're going to lead with, right? The word submission here is important. And not because somewhere deep in the back of our masculine brains, we're just going, yeah, that's the way it should be. All right? She should eat her chips the way I tell her to eat her chips. She should serve up my... Let's we'll not go down that path. That'll be very, very... It is an important word. It's important for us to grasp here. Look, it is a contentious word. I, I, I agree. 
you talk about submission today and we're going to have a lot of different feelings and a lot of different emotions. We're going to have stories probably even in this room where people are starting to think now about really unhealthy relationships, really unhealthy environments and they're sort of saying, hang, hang on Chris, are you saying I should be submissive? And Look, we don't have, to, I'm really happy to talk about it one-on-one -on -one and chat with you further but but I just want to deal with what Paul is trying to say here for the moment in a general sense that I hope all of us can sort of try and grapple with a little bit. When Paul was dealing with this word, he's, he's using it in a sense of liberation. A biblical understanding of submission is always closely linked to the idea of respect. Respect and submission go hand in hand. Now, not the type of respect that says, listen, I'm an authority, you need to respect me. All right? That's a forced type of respect. And in fact, that's not respect at all. You can't require respect of someone. You can't require respect of them. You can't force respect from someone. You can only ever earn respect. Biblical submission is never something forced onto a people. That would be slavery. Not submission. Submission is always something that originates with the person who willingly lays aside their rights in a matter out of response and respect and confident trust in another. That's what submission is. It's not saying, listen, you need to submit, and they're going, okay, I don't have a choice. I'm gonna... That's not submission. That's slavery. But when someone says, listen, I don't agree with this particular step. It might be something that we're just making a decision on. It's whether or not we're going to get a large chips or a small chips. <laughs> I mean, I don't agree with that. I don't think that's going to be the best thing necessarily, but I respect you and I trust you. And so I'm going to willingly lay aside by my choice. I'm going to willingly lay aside my rights in the matter. And I'm just going to trust you and go with you on this. That's a picture of submission. And Paul is saying the gospel does that. It points us to a Jesus the Son of God who deserves and is right now seated at the right hand of the Father in all authority and all rule and all dominion with angels bowing down before him, with the elders of heaven singing continually, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And the Father says, my son, I ask of you to give of your life. And you have a Jesus who weeps in the garden. And he says, if there's another way, Father, but not my will. Yours be done. I trust you. You are my father. And he submits to the father's will. He gives himself into the hand of his father and he says, I trust you with this. And he lays aside his own will. He lays aside all the positions of authority he could have, remember? Hung, hanging there on a cross, he could have in a moment called and there would have been legions of angels from heaven who'd come down rescue from the cross slay the the wicked there how dare you lay a hand on the son of god but as a sheep before it's what he dumb he didn't say a thing he just let it that's a picture of submission We willingly lay aside our rights in a matter out of response of respectful and confident trust in another. Of course, I want to try and be really clear that this is not in any way condoning doormat wives who just sit at home and allow husbands to treat them however they want and just to then use the Bible against them and say, hey, listen, doesn't the Bible say that you need to submit? If someone chats with me and they're in 
a situation or circumstance in their life where they're in danger, physically, emotionally, spiritually. There is due warrant for us to be concerned. There's due warrant for us to be able to talk to the relevant people involved, including sometimes the relevant authorities involved. This is not condoning in any way abuse, but this is saying, as a woman of God, men, we're going to get to you in a minute, but as a woman of God who, who's looking to say, how does Jesus fit in my life? Is he just a segment? Is he just something that I include in one part of my life? How does this consistently work out? Paul says there's a way that we can relate wives to your husbands. And it's noticing, noticing that the last part of that phrase says, as is fitting to the Lord. Because ultimately, this is not about saying, listen, my husband is the Lord, my husband is God, I just wanted to serve him. I mean, really, that would be kind of nice, probably, wouldn't it? If you're a husband. But this is actually about a woman who says, you know what, my relationship is not just some little segment detached from my faith and my walk with Jesus. My relationship with my husband is actually connected to my relationship with God. This is fitting to the Lord. This is how I express my faith and my walk with Jesus, even in how I relate to this dope who just doesn't get it sometimes, who I know... it. It's not, it's not a little segment in our life somewhere. And it's not individualism which just says, how does, this marriage, how does this marriage serve me? It's not what it is either. But men, we'll never get finished if we go that slow. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Love your wives, husband, in the first century was as bad as countercultural as you could get. This was a slap in the face to a culture that prized the image of men being the king of their castle and everyone else existed for their pleasure and for their purpose. Men were to love their wives, not just possess them. Men were to love their wives. And just in case you wonder what that looks like, Paul would write elsewhere in some of his letters, church. The Bible often uses the analogy of the church being the bride of Christ. Jesus as the groom and we, the church, as the bride. It's a, it's a metaphor, an analogy. It's a powerful analogy all the way through the scriptures. And Paul actually says, listen, this is how Jesus loved his wife. Jesus laid down his life for his wife. Jesus saw the needs of his wife as being so important that he sacrificed everything, including his own life for her. Jesus was able to willingly be submissive to the Father's will and say, not my will, but your will be done, because he knew that it was for his wife. And so when Paul says, husbands, love your wife, we could easily read this as saying, husbands, serve your wife. Serve your wife. Husbands, lay aside your agendas and lift up the hopes and dreams of your wife. Husbands, learn to hear the secret language of women. Husbands, study her, anticipate her, adore her, be gentle with her, place her needs above your needs, give her time. Occasionally buy her a flower. I had to repent when I was studying this. I don't buy my wife flowers. You know, I've got a good deal. My neighbor grows flowers. It's awesome. I come home and sometimes I find just flowers sitting at our back door. And Kat's not there. I put them in a vase. Put them on the table. She comes and she goes, they look beautiful. They look like Suzanne's flowers. Don't buy into the macho image, men. That image of masculinity that sometimes we buy into, or maybe that image that the culture is pushing 
of that weak sort of boy man of modern progressive masculinity. Don't buy into it. God is calling us men to love our wives because that's how he loved. That's how the gospel shapes us. It doesn't just fit into some neat little segment somewhere. It says, Chris, men, this is what it looks like when the gospel takes root in your heart. It will affect how you treat your wife. It disgusts me when I hear men on social media or in the broader media who talk about faith and they big note you know, the, the role of the Christian and then you hear about the way that they have abused the relationship with their wife or pursued other relationships and you think, you, you have not grasped how God loves and I can see it in your marriage. Men, love your wives. All right, kids, young people, your turn. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this is what pleases the Lord. Full stop. Let's move on. Just do it. Um, Now, I want you to notice something. If you're younger here, and when do we stop being children with parents, by the way? I mean, my mum and dad are um, still with us. They're in Queensland. So I don't have to get permission you know, for stuff if I don't want to. I'm, I'm 43 years old. I can do what I want. But how do I relate to them? How do I respect and treat them? And whether you're, you might be a young child or a teenager here or someone who's still living maybe under the authority or in the home of your parents maybe, but... But, but for all of us, I want you to notice, again, the connection that Paul makes. It's not just about being obedient. He's not just saying, kids, do what your mum says. Do what your dad says, whatever. He says, children, obey your parents and everything. Why? What's his reason for it? For this is pleasing to the Lord. Again, he's connecting the way that we treat someone in a relationship. How do we respond in a relationship with someone to our faith? He's connecting the two together. This isn't individualism. It isn't compartmentalization. This is about a life saturated with Jesus that starts to play itself out even in the way that I listen and says, you know, do this or do that or whatever it might be. This willingness to obey isn't fueled by blood, by genetics. You know, you're my son. You must obey me. No, it's fueled by faith. I want, to, I want to please and serve God. I want to love Him. And one way that that plays itself out of my life is actually relating to my parents in a particular way where I trust them, where I'm willing to put aside my agenda for a little while. Just five more minutes, Dad. Or a sense of saying, okay, not just because you're my mum and dad, but because I actually want to figure out this walking by faith thing as a disciple. So children, obey your parents. Verse 21. Man, isn't it interesting that in verse 21, Paul just deals with fathers and gives us a bit of a hammering and he lets mums off the hook. You notice that? Now, I think that there are things about this that apply across the genders, across the roles. Whether you're a dad or a mum, I think we can take something out of this. But I want you to notice that there's, if there's something in the Bible or something not in the Bible, pay attention to it. Because I am the first to admit that I think, for dads, we have a peculiar tendency to slide into the problem that Paul talks about here in verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And we live in an age now which is dominated by the term toxic masculinity. Have you heard that? Toxic masculinity. I think we have a modern culture that has made the mistake, though, of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We want to eradicate being toxic, and I agree with that. It has no place in, in our culture, has no place in our homes. Toxic people, full stop. T- 
toxic masculinity is horrendous, but somehow we've mixed the two up a little bit and the world is quickly trying to throw out toxic, but along the way it's also trying to throw out masculinity. Modernism has laboured hard to water down what it means to be a man in our world today. Here's the truth. We don't need less men who act like men. We need more. But we don't turn to the cliched images, right, of men who put war paint on their faces and stomp around the fire in their underwear or something. We, we don't need more men puffing out their chests and... We certainly don't need more men who retreat from all responsibility and hide behind some warrior avatar on their PlayStation in their grandmother's basement. We, we need men who can show the generation behind them what it looks like to love well and to lead well. And fathers, we have a unique privilege of creating that environment in our homes, in our families, in our churches, in our workplaces. Older men here that maybe work in industry or in office spaces, there are young guys growing up in your workplace and they've never seen what it looks like for an older man to love and lead well. They don't know what it looks like. And they're trying to work it out the best they can and they're getting all sorts of things mixed up maybe. But, but we have a unique responsibility and an opportunity to show them. And to show, it, to show our sons and our, our daughters what that looks like. To show them what real masculinity looks like. Masculinity which is shaped by the gospel that doesn't push and provoke setting ever higher expectations on people. That's not what the gospel does. The gospel comes down to our level and says it's done and invites them into relationship. Not live up to this. Work harder for that. Be better. And so when Paul says, fathers, don't provoke your children, why? lest they become discouraged. Generations of children growing up, not knowing what it means for a dad to just come alongside them and put a hand on their shoulder and say, son, I know that you, you really worked hard on that. And I'm proud of you. Or, or daughter who would just embrace them and say, listen, I know what people are saying, but you are beautiful. We need men like that. Men who will model that same character maybe even to children who aren't their own. And that may mean that you'll end up inviting into your family a child that you didn't bear. And I would encourage you, men and women in families here, there is a desperate need in our community with children who are just living without any sense of hope. To say, come into our world for a little while. We want to show you Jesus in the way that we care for you. But maybe that's not what God has called you to do. But, but if you'll open your eyes to the families around us, even into this church. I want to say that there are single mums here. Who are exhausted from trying to wear two pairs of shoes. Mums who are courageous and they're doing their best to be both mum and dad. I would love it if we were a church of fathers who would commit to saying that we won't let these women walk alone. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. All right, let's move on. Last part, 
masters and slaves. Important note. I'm fairly certain in Raymond Terrace in 2019 that there's no one living in slavery here. Metaphorically, you might feel you are, but actually, although it still exists in some parts of the world, um, slavery is not here. But I think that we can clearly take some of the principles that Paul's going to talk about here and relate it to an area um, of life that we most of us will have engagement with at some point in time, and that is an employer and an employee type relationship. Uh, so let's just have a quick think about some of the, I think, from a point of being an employee. So let's just read and refresh our, our mind again. Verse 22, bond servants um, is another term for slaves. And let's just pull it out of the context and put it into ours for a moment and say, if you're an employee here today, if, if you're employed by somebody else, here are some principles that I think that we can reflect on about how the gospel integrates even into our workplace. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, employers, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So just three really quick observations. What Paul's asking of those of us who are employed in a workplace is that there be a sense of sincere obedience, and not just when people are looking. That's important, right? I've worked in workplaces where everyone knows when the, uh, the foreman's going to be overlooking your shift. There's a big difference between how people will work when someone up the chain is watching them and when they're just left on their own to finish off a job. And Paul says, listen, the way that the gospel shapes us means that it will even affect how we work, whether someone's watching us or not. Because, he says, you know that your true master is always watching. There's a sense that we work not just for the person who signs off on our paycheck, But we're working because we know, hey, listen, God is watching. God is overseeing my life. And I want to please and honor him in how I work. So the second thing he says is work hard. People of faith should be known as hardworking people. Not to try and earn favor with anyone, but simply because they want to respect those who are over them. Whatever you're doing, and you might have someone in head office who's signing off on your pay, but that's not the point. You are actually, Paul says, working for the Lord. So it doesn't matter what you're doing. I mean, you could have a really highly important job where you're managing budgets of millions of dollars, or you could be, uh, like a job job that I had one year, I was uh, working on a potato harvester. Bill, you worked on potato harvesters, haven't you, mate? Fun job, isn't it? Great fun. If you're, yeah, I didn't find it fun. Um, it was cold. Potatoes, for some reason, harvest and become ripe right when it's like freezing cold in Tasmania. And working on this harvester through the night, and oh man, who cares if the conveyor, go, conveyor belt goes past and just let a few go? Don't worry about it. You're sorting potatoes and picking. Look, it doesn't matter if you're, if you're managing budgets of billions of dollars or whether you're picking potatoes or doing anything that you know, God calls you to do. Paul is saying, work hard at it because you're actually working for the Lord. That's your true master. And the third thing he says in that that I want you to notice, verse 25. Listen, there are workplace injustices. We get that, right? If you work somewhere, there are workplace injustices. And sometimes they come to light and they're dealt with, and that's great. And other times they're not. But, but Paul says, listen, the wrongdoer will be paid back. The wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever he's done. Either people are brought to justice now, or listen, they will be brought to justice later. 
There is no injustice with God. Justice will come. Last bit, then we're done. Employers. Employers. Just one verse. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, he links it back to our relationship, right? It's not just because you should be a good boss. It's because you should know that you too have a master in heaven. You might be a leading hand, you might be a department manager, you might be a CEO, but whatever you are, you are no different than the the first year apprentice or the trainee because you are all under God's leadership. If you are a follower of Jesus, Paul is saying, let the gospel work itself out even in how you instruct and lead and are over other people, knowing that, listen, I know that God is my master. So I'm going to treat these people in the way that I know and see God treating me with a sense of dignity and respect. So here's, here's where we left up with. I'm not going to ask you, this is not the application, I want you to go home and squeeze a bit more Jesus into your life. It's, it's not, not the application to this. It's not... Go home, sit down, draw a pie graph, work out all the different segments of your life, and I want you to make the, this Jesus bit, the spiritual bit, bigger. It needs to be the most dominant bit in your life, all right? That's not what this passage is saying as well. I'm not asking husbands and wives to squeeze in a bit more prayer just before you go to sleep, although that probably wouldn't hurt. I'm not asking dads to squeeze in a family devotion at least every second night. That probably wouldn't hurt either. I'm not asking workplaces to add prayer to their toolbox talks at the beginning of the shift. Maybe that'd be good too. I'm not asking you to squeeze in a bit of Jesus anywhere. I'm asking you to view everything through the lens of the gospel. Where Jesus is all, remember, and in all. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you step into our worlds as messy as they are. None of our lives are neatly segmented and organized in a way that it's so neat and tidy. It just doesn't happen like that. And Lord, you want to be a part of all of it. In fact, you want to shape all of it so that it reflects who you are. Lord, will you help us to do that? particularly for those of us who are addressed this morning directly through your word, husbands and wives, children, parents, employees, employers. Lord, all of us have places where we can think through what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in, in this environment, in the relationships that I have here. And Lord, we want to be people who reflect who you are in all of life. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.